And we've got to recognise that the NHS and care are two interdependent systems. And actually, the staff in care are supporting people with really complex health and social care needs. Mm -hmm. So it really is a profession, not a job. Hi, I'm Toby Ellie Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines a light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021 and most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Professor Martin Green of Care England. As Chief Executive of Care England for the past 15 years, it's safe to say Professor Martin Green is one of the most important and enduring voices in the UK care sector. In this episode, Professor Green highlights how the focus on the NHS may have negatively impacted the care sector. I asked Martin about his difficult personal experience contracting COVID-19, and Professor Green pinpoints what the sector needs to do in the next 10 years to be moving in the right direction. But first, let's start with how Professor Martin Green began his career in care. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Toby. Awesome. So if you can just give the listeners a brief background into your career history and why you decided to choose a career in care. Well, I mean, it goes back a really long way, actually. I started doing voluntary work at school where I went to a, a, a disabled person's home. And I guess uh, the, the process of that was about befriending, but it really got me involved in thinking about social care. I also took sociology when I was at university. So um, I began my uh, sort of academic life talking about social issues. And then I was lucky enough to get a job doing some research on to older people's housing with care. Uh, and then I worked for Gingerbread, which was a single parents charity. I then got involved in the Age UK movement and I was CEO of three Age UKs in, in London. Well, they were age concerns then. Um, I then went to Uganda and worked on some projects around disabled people and HIV. And then I came back and I worked again in charities for older people. And then I was lucky enough to be appointed to Care England. And your listeners might not know that Care England is a representative body for care providers. So we're trying to improve the environment within which care providers can operate. And our members uh, deliver services to older people, 
to people with learning disabilities. We've also got some brain injury units and some mental health services. So I think we see how the whole agenda is, is being played out. Mm. So I want to take you back to around December of 2019. Where was the care sector at the time? What was the sort of highest priorities and what was on the agenda for Care England? Well, I guess the care agenda was always about how we got for funding for quality care. And that was one of our big issues. We were trying also to get the government to think about this in the longer term. So there'd been a lot of talk over many years, Toby, as you'll, you'll well know, about uh, funding reform. And way back, uh, we, were, we were talking about that. And I guess our big priorities were about funding for good quality care, how we could sustain the sector, how we could also reward and recognise the fantastic contribution of the workforce. And we also had priorities that were about innovation and development. So how do we de develop the model? How do we get more technology into care? How do we use data more effectively? So those were our big issues way back before the pandemic, which mm. seems a tremendously long time ago now. Absolutely. Do, do, you, know, do you remember the first time you heard the words COVID-19? Well, I do. And it was partly um, because a friend of mine had been in China and came back and talked to me about that. Um, in terms of where we heard it first in relation to care, if you'll remember, there was some really unfortunate things happening in Spain and Italy, and particularly care homes were being affected. And uh, they saw lots of people dying, but also lots of staff deserting their care homes. So I guess it was January that we first started to hear stories around this. But I think like many people, we thought it was something that probably wouldn't really affect us and we didn't see it as being global. So we, we, we weren't really uh, uh, understanding how incredibly difficult this was going to be, not only for the care sector, but for everybody. And at that same period, did you have any loved ones or uh, friends in care? Um, no, no, I didn't. I mean, my parents were in care uh, just towards the end of their life, but many years ago. Um, uh, but I knew people who had family members in care services. Um, so they, when this started to get um, more publicity, that obviously caused great concern to people. And it was a particular concern to care providers because they really wanted to make sure that their care um, services were safe. When was the moment that you realised that COVID-19 was going to profoundly ch change the UK care sector? Well, I guess it started to become apparent in sort of February, March time. But it was interesting, Toby, that one of the key messages that came out of the, um, the government at the time when we first started talking about COVID, there was a, a, a thought that it wasn't going to affect older people and that they wouldn't be on the front line of the pandemic. And I think that was why they focused on the NHS. They started to take people out of hospitals and obviously care homes, particularly for older people, were the places where people were going. And um, of course, that created huge problems later. Mm, so we're going to touch on some of those problems. But at that time, let's say uh, January of 2020 now, what was the initial guidance from the government at that time? Well, the initial guidance was all about the NHS and care was very much neglected in that. And if you'll remember, the slogan at the start was the slogan that we have now, which was stay at home, uh, protect the NHS and save lives. And one of the things that that did, uh, I, I think it was not deliberate, but because the focus was on the NHS, what care providers started to see 
was their supply chains, particularly of things like PPE, started to dry up because mm. things were being diverted for the NHS. So we had a situation where, first of all, people did not acknowledge that older people, particularly older and frail people, were the most affected. Mm. And we also had a situation where, um, because the focus was on the NHS, a lot of the things that we had relied on, like our supply chains, were also being disrupted. So in a way, it created the worst of all environments. Mm. And, and around that time, I think that was, uh, you know, the focus wasn't on the care sector. So what was the main concerns from your members in Care England? What were the key challenges that they were sort of uh, bringing your way at that time? Well, they were very much about how do we access PPE? They were very much also about how do we get access to primary care when we've got people who are sick in our services? And one of the things that happened, because this focus on the NHS was at the start of the pandemic, a lot of primary care and a lot of support staff, there's support staff around medicine, so for example, district nurses, OTs, physios, they stopped going into care services because the focus was all on the NHS. So we then had a situation where when people were becoming ill, there weren't necessarily the access to health services that you would have normally had. It was also interesting, Toby, because one of the things that happened was it wasn't only about people who were sick because of COVID. Because there were no admissions, people who had things like urinary tract infections or indeed may have had a fall or perhaps a mild stroke, they didn't get the support they would have normally got from the NHS. So all those things were starting to be noticed by care providers. Um, and, and that, of course, uh, meant there were some significant pressures. There were also pressures around staff who were becoming ill, who were then uh, not being able to work. And then, of course, we have the staff pressures too. Well, so I just want to um, take a step back for a second. So in June of 2019, you were involved in founding the Care Badge. And in January of 2020, we actually had a representative from Every Life Technologies, who was also a founding member, um, join us on the show. And they gave us an update saying that there were uh, 100,000 care badges in circulation at that time. But before I go on, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Can you just yeah. give the listeners uh, a bit of background on why the care badge was set up? Well, I guess it really uh, came out of the fact that I gave a speech at the King's Fund and I followed on from uh, Secretary of State. And uh, one of the things I said was I noticed that the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care is wearing an NHS badge. And what would happen if the Secretary of State for Transport wore a Virgin Trains badge? Everybody would say, oh, he's favouring one bit of his portfolio. And then Robin from Every Life Technologies came up to me afterwards and said, well, I think the problem is there's no identity for care. And I have to say, Robin is amazing. And when I had that very brief conversation with him, within a week, he had uh, got some designs together. He'd registered a public interest uh, a company. He'd done a whole raft of things. And because of his energy, creativity and the wonderful support that all his colleagues at Every Life gave, we were able to establish and launch the Care Badge. Uh, what happened was it, it's rapidly gained a lot of traction um, and also, uh, you know, colleagues in other associations such as the, the National Care Forum, uh, the National Care Association, the United Kingdom 
Kingdom Home Care Association, they all supported it as well. So we were really well supported. And we started to sell quite a lot of badges. And we also were able to give quite a lot of money from the sale of those badges to the Care Workers Charity and other charitable organisations. What we thought, though, we had um, we had some really lucky breaks in that when the campaign was going on, the election campaign, the prime minister appeared in a care badge when he went to a couple of care homes. And uh, it was Canford Healthcare gave him those badges. So he was then um, publicly seen with the badge on. The Secretary of State similarly wore the badge. The minister, Helen Waitley, has been fantastic, really supportive of it. So what we decided, Robin and I and the other people involved in the care badge, that we would hand over the sort of intellectual property of it to the department so that it became the identity for care. Um, And I think, you know, partly because of COVID, it hasn't taken off quite as quickly as we would like. Mm -hmm. But we're all clear that we do want an identity for care and the care badge really provides us with that. Absolutely. And I was going to actually touch on that. I remember during the briefings in from late March to April, when, you know, you put on the news and you'll get the daily briefings. And at the time, the focus was on protect the NHS, protect the NHS. And people in the care sector kind of felt left out until that first day when Matt Hancock wore the care badge. And I went over to Twitter and LinkedIn And the feeling was from the comments that they finally felt that they're being represented um, and they're they're being appreciated as the care sector and recognised as well. Do you remember that moment? No, I do remember that moment. And I think it really was pivotal that um, people started to wear it in senior positions. And of course, it was great that the prime minister uh, wore it on a couple of occasions as well. So it really did give a signal to the care sector that they weren't forgotten. Uh, mm. And now I guess our challenge is to turn that signal into tangible action mm. and to some clear outcomes for the care sector, and particularly post the pandemic, where the sector has been quite amazing, and particularly the staff. They, you know, they are absolute heroes of this pandemic, and we must use that as our platform to change things when we get back to normal. Absolutely. I want to touch on the staff as well. I'm going to come into that. But around the time of the first lockdown, um, this was the time when supermarkets had the priority hours in the morning for vulnerable and key workers. I think some care staff had challenges getting in because they weren't recognised as key workers um, widely. But then later on, am I right in saying that the care badge was used as a way to recognise them, as, as a way for the shop? Um, staff to recognise them as key workers to actually get in. Yeah, it was, Toby. And one of the things that was really uh, quite difficult at the start of the pandemic was that all the NHS staff were given priority. But of course, a lot of social care staff were doing similar work. And of course, there are a lot of social care staff, particularly those in domiciliary and community care, who had to go shopping for their service users. And so they needed to have access to the the designated shopping times. Um, And it was a good opportunity as well to say, well, there is an identity for care and the care badge can be a symbol that you can be a key worker just as people in the NHS are. Absolutely. So let's talk about the real heroes in this. Do you um, have any examples of sacrifices you're aware of that care staff went above and beyond to provide the very best care? 
Oh, there are so many examples. Um, you know, for example, I did hear of care staff who actually moved into the care home so that they were not bringing any potential to bring COVID into the care home. There were staff who covered for colleagues or who were ill or shielding. There were really big attempts to make sure that despite the fact that they couldn't be visiting, people still had connections with their families. So people brought in their own tablets so that um, you know people could have a connection with their loved ones. And the number of people who went the extra mile were just phenomenal. I mean, you know, I, and I used to hear these stories every day. And they were stories of people who were going the extra mile, but actually didn't themselves acknowledge just what a fantastic contribution they were making. So I think the fact that people who are working care are sometimes quite reticent about acknowledging their own contribution. So I think it's incumbent on the rest of us to really show that we appreciate what they do and we really want to see recognition for those amazing staff who gave so much and are continuing to give so much uh, during this pandemic. Mm. So just, just on the, on the um, subject of recognition, what was your thoughts on the Clap for Carers initiative? And the Clap for Carers was a symbol and a, a, an opportunity for people to say, I recognise what you do. But I think the next challenge is to how do we make that tangible? Now, in Scotland and in Wales, people who work in care have had a bonus from the government as a recognition for what they have done. And I really want to see the English government doing that as well so that we can really start to say we appreciate what you've done. And it's beyond a clap. It's going to be a tangible recognition. And then, of course, it has to be the platform for having a proper approach to recognising care workers as professionals. So we need skills and qualifications frameworks that are transportable. We need career escalators. And above all, we need to move this from being a job uh, paid for on things like minimum wage to being a profession which is acknowledged, respected and rewarded in line with the work that people do. Mm, so just touching on that, so you, uh, we had a carer join us on um, this season of the show and they mentioned that there's a big stigma around the word carer. So you're a founding member of the National Ki uh, Skills Academy for Social Care. Do you think we have a problem in the UK on recognising the competencies and skill levels of care workers? Yeah, I think we do. And I think, you know, one of the things that's happened is everybody in the public focuses on the NHS and we've got to recognise that the NHS and care are two interdependent systems and actually the staff in care are supporting people with really complex health and social care needs mm -hmm. so it really is a profession not a job um, and I think we've just got to raise the flag for care and say how important it is um, when it comes to you know delivering really uh, necessary support for people who are very, very uh, complex in terms of their health and care needs. Mm. So I'm just going to shift gears slightly. Um, so moving forward, over the last 12 months, you've been extremely busy. I've seen you on the news. You've uh, Care England have been giving their sort of briefing out and making sense of all the sort of uh, uh, the communication coming from the government. I just want to ask you, what's been the most challenging moment from a personal perspective, but then also from a professional perspective over the last 12 months? 
Well, I think the most challenging moments were when we saw how many people had died in care services because of COVID. And one of the challenges was that we had very out of date statistics from the ONS. And my statistics, when the ONS were telling us that 200 odd people had died, my statistics were telling me that 7,000 people had died. It was also very sad when I went to do virtual visits to care providers where they had lost so many people and the emotional impact on the staff as well as the physical work that they had to do was enormous. And one of the things I don't think we acknowledge enough is that care workers form relationships with the people they support, sometimes that go on for months and years. And so to lose those people is a bereavement for the staff. And I don't think anybody recognised the emotional toll that it took on care providers and particularly care staff. And I think also that we went through the first wave, we breathed again, and then of course we went into the second wave. And sometimes care services that didn't have outbreaks in the first wave had them in the second wave. And then again, you know, that was another really difficult thing for staff to deal with because at the end of the first wave, we thought there was light at the end of the tunnel. And then, of course, we had the next wave. So, you know, people were having emotional trauma heaped on uh, over a long period of time. And of course, in care services, we are used to losing people because they are very old and very frail in many cases. But what we were seeing in COVID was several people dying within 24 hours of one another. We also should acknowledge that there are care staff who died as well. People who showed their commitment and went into care services to be able to support people who were uh, you know, very frail, then contracted COVID and died themselves. And I really want us to think about when this is over, how we give due recognition to those care staff and the residents of care services who have died. And of course, the other thing to say, Toby, is it's not only about older people. You know, mm. we had reports about people with learning disabilities and how much more likely they were to die of COVID. So this has had impacts right across the care sector. And we've got to find a way of acknowledging the contribution and also respecting people who have died. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's unbelievable what's happened over the last 12 months. And it's... Um scary as well. Professor Green articulates so well the enormous challenge both care staff and providers experienced in the past year. It's so easy to forget that workers do care about the individuals they provide care for and losing them can be personally heartbreaking. Coming up on the show, Professor Green and I talk through the occupancy challenges faced by care providers. And I asked Martin what he wants to see change within the sector in the next 10 years. But first, I asked Martin about his experience contracting COVID-19 hope you don't mind me sharing we were supposed to be recording this a couple of weeks back and you also contracted the virus yourself do you mind just talking around that a little bit yeah i think the thing that i really found was how frightening it was you know uh, you're in a situation where you're starting to feel very ill you have no energy your breathing starts to be labored and difficult um i was also compounded for me because uh, two very dear friends of mine died of covid whilst i was ill 
Um, and also, I, I was not really prepared for it to go on as long as it did and for it to have such an impact in terms of energy levels. And even at some time afterwards, and I feel now I'm sort of pretty much back to normal, but I do get tired. And I think it is quite a long haul when you come out of it. Um, I'm also conscious that there are some people who have what's called long COVID, and they've had a much worse position than I've had because I do feel I'm coming out of it now. But there are people whose the impact of COVID is lasting months and possibly it will last years. So, you know, it's a very frightening condition. Hmm. How long was your period? I was really out of action for about a month. Hmm. Which Hmm. seems, you know, seemed a, a tremendously long time. It is a long time, absolutely. But it's great to see you in, in good health. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to s- uh, switch gears a little bit. In terms of, so the last 12 months has been unbelievably tragic, horrible. Looking back, what would you say some of the lessons learned for the sector are? Well, I think the lessons that have been learned, they're not only lessons for the sector, I think they're lessons for government and for the whole system. The first thing is that you should not focus on an institution, you should focus on people. So this notion that we're protecting the NHS, well, actually, a lot of the people who are at most risk and who subsequently died were not in the NHS. And we need to focus on the people in most need, not the organisations. I think there's also been a really big lesson about how we need to have much more connectivity across those systems, health and social care, and how we all should be reminding ourselves that our focus is on the people who need support. Um, And I think um, one of the other things that's come across, which is actually quite a positive, some things that we tried to do seem to take forever. And then because of COVID, there was a fast track to them. So, for example, the Enhanced Healthcare in Care Homes initiative, which had been in a long time in gestation, suddenly was implemented. Likewise, how we got data. So there was all these endless hoops to jump through to get on things like capacity tracker, etc. Well, suddenly all those were swept away. There were no technical reasons why people couldn't get on it. They got on it and that started to give us really clear data. I think another area though relating to data, one of the things COVID showed us was how lacking in data social care was and also how some of the quangos around were not really fit for purpose. So, for example, the ONS in a technical age was delivering us data that was 10 days out of date. Mm. You know, how is it possible in the 21st century when we've got access to all these really, really up-to-date technology for people not to be able to deliver much more real-time data? Uh, So I think some really important things around data. I think also one of the other things that's come out, and it links to what we talked about in relation to staffing, was how incredibly skilled the staff are. You know, they are people who managed the most complex situations and they did it as well without the support networks that you would normally have around you, like district nurses, you know, the NHS. And interestingly, there were care staff who were doing things to support people that they were always told they couldn't do. And then suddenly, because there was nobody else there, they had to do it. And so one of the things that I think we've really understood is that the skill set of social care is quite high and we need to 
formalize that into some kind of structure. So I think when this is over, there'll be some really big lessons and we'll not necessarily go back to business as usual because there has been a lot of lessons learned and we need to make sure the positive ones translate into uh, you know, improvements in the uh, services to the people we support, but also recognizing the incredible um, work uh, and also skills and competencies of the staff. Absolutely. So before we take a, a look forward, mm. um, I, one of the biggest concerns from the providers that we work with and we're hearing from the sector is the occupancy challenges. Yeah. What are some of the, can you talk around that a little bit now? And then also what are some of the things that some uh, the providers should be thinking about? Well, I think the occupancy issue is really significant. What we saw during COVID was the loss of about 30,000 people who were in care settings, but we didn't have the same flow of people coming in because, you know, the hospitals weren't working in the same way. There weren't social care departments enabling people to come into care. The families who might be furloughed were looking after their relatives rather than the relative needing to come into long-term care. So I think those various things have put real pressures on occupancy. One of the other things to say is because the way in which this sector is funded, we have very, very um, small margins. So the way in which you can be on just the cusp of viability is through having high levels of occupancy. When those occupancy levels dip, then it really throws into question the sustainability of the organisation. Now, I think also we should acknowledge that at the same time occupancy levels have dipped and income levels have dipped, there have been enormous increases in costs. So even before the um, free PPE happened, you know, I was talking to care providers who were saying to me things like, um, at this point in the year, my normal PPE bill would be about £250,000. And I've just signed off 2.6 million was one uh, care provider. Wow. So, you know, these things are significant increases in cost. In terms of what care providers need to do, I think there are several things. First of all, I think we need to send the message that we are open for business. Though, of course, until we get much less COVID in the general population, that is quite difficult to do. Uh, but there are ways in which you can make sure people have had vaccinations, et cetera, and testing is another way in which we can make sure that people aren't COVID positive if they come into care settings. The other thing I think the government need to do is what the Welsh government have done, which is give a guaranteed occupancy level. Um, and again, that will be a way of maintaining the stability of services through this crisis. Um, uh, so I think there are actions for providers, there are actions for government, and they just need to be coordinated. And also they need to be swift because, you know, the sustainability issue is becoming very real for many providers. So in terms of government, how have you, how receptive have the government been to your suggestions over the last 12 months? I know it seems like now there's much more receptiveness, but how has it been over the last 12 months? Well, on some things, the government's been very receptive. And I mean, I think one of the things that's happened, a lot of this has been driven by the minister, Helen Waitley, who has done a really fantastic job actually defending social care, uh, both, you know, she's had a bit of a bad press sometimes because of the sound bites that she did on this interview or that interview. But actually, I know how hard she's worked behind the scenes and how many times 
because of her intervention, social care has been at the table. Similarly, I think the Secretary of State has done uh, quite a lot in relation to making sure social care is not left out, though, of course, his primary focus was and is always going to be the NHS. So there have been, I think, several things. So, for example, we did a lot of lobbying, as did other associations, on the fact that at the start of the pandemic, the government gave 3.2 billion to local authorities. But in fact, Meg Hillier's Public Accounts Committee showed that only 0.5 billion of that had reached the front line. So we lobbied for more and we got the Infection Control Fund. So again, that was a tangible way in which more money was being put into the sector. We've also worked with the government on some of the policies, procedures and how they are presented because at the start of the pandemic, some of the quangos who were delivering advice, people like Public Health England, for example, they didn't know what they were issuing the advice for. They didn't know the sector well enough. So what that produced was endless changes in the advice. So we were having you know, reiterations of advice in terms of 10 times a week. So what we were trying to do was get to some really simple, clear messages um, and, and offered to help with some of that. Uh, and I think the department was pretty receptive to some of that. So I think there have been some tangible ways in which our intervention has been helpful, hopefully to the sector, but hopefully as well to the uh, department. Awesome. So we're recording this in March of 2021, and we're currently in a lockdown at the moment. But the roadmap of uh, coming out of lockdown has just recently been announced. Now, what kind of reform do you think the care sector needs to stop 2021 being like 2020? And what should we be doing to ensure we protect uh, the sector and the people that's being cared for as much as possible this time around? Well, I think one of the things that has been quite interesting is the whole issue about visiting. And uh, I think we should acknowledge care providers only uh, stopped visiting because of their fear that COVID would come into the home and the consequences to their residents. It's quite bizarre in a way that the Prime Minister talks about being focused on uh, the data, not the dates, and yet the visiting, reinstatement of visiting process is very much focused on a given date. Um, I think the things that have been helpful are the testing um, and also, of course, the vaccination programme. But I think we need to be very cautious about how we open up social care so that it doesn't then go into another round of third wave of COVID. In terms of sustainability, there has got to be some support for things like uh, the occupancy deficit, there has got to also be support for things like insurance. So, you know, uh, you will have heard that some insurance uh, providers have completely come out of the social care market. We've seen situations where people have had enormous increases in their premiums. And in one case, one of my members uh, categorised a 640% increase in his um, insurance premium. So some of those supplementary things need to be dealt with. There also needs to be an understanding about staffing because with shielding, with people on quarantine, this has caused big problems for the staffing of care services. So I'd like to see much more proactivity about how we recruit, train and develop the new workforce. And in, in fact, a lot of people who may have found themselves out of a job in retail might have some of the interpersonal skills that are good for care. And with some training and support, they might be able to craft a new career for life in the care sector 
rather than in the retail sector. But again, we need uh, coordinated action on all these things. Mm, I, I also agree on that last point in terms of um, the recruitment perspective. We're seeing a lot of providers now pick up care workers from hospitality, airline staff, and they have those the same skill set. And, and I think what we're seeing is the myth is being dispelled from the general public that you have to have previous experience, you know, provide training, you have to have qualifications, you know. So um, that's been a positive. Now, we've touched on the past, we've touched on the present. I'm keen to get your insight on the future. In 10 years time from now, what type of reform would you like to see happen in the care sector? Well, the first thing I think we've got to do is craft a new vision for the care sector. So often we talk about the money, but we don't really understand what care does, what its outcomes are, what an impact it makes on people's lives. So I think we need to craft a new vision. I, I would like to see a care sector that works on people's assets, not their deficits. So at the moment, the way in which the system works is you only get support when you're in a crisis. And I think we've got to downstream some of that. I think also there is real potential for the care home to become a hub for the management of long-term conditions in a local area. So not only providing residential care, but perhaps a range of other services to people who might live locally, who might, for example, be caring for somebody living with dementia or a brain injury or a physical disability. And the care sector could offer some of that support. I think that would provide not only support for the locality, I think it could provide extra income for the care sector. I also think it would uh, be a good way of creating a pipeline so people who know your services when they do need long-term care will gravitate to the services they know and respect. So I think there's some of that. I think we need much more uh, interconnection between health and social care. So in 10 years time, I'd like to see joined up records. I'd like to see uh, a much more focus on outcomes rather than organisations um, so that we can be really clear that the engagement we have with a person who's using a service is actually delivering something useful for them. And I'm now working, because one of the other things we've got to do is align success measures. At the moment, all bits of the system are working to different success measures. And to say they don't harmonize, actually some of them conflict with one another. So all the, uh, the, the things that make a hospital really successful is about activity. Whereas what we want is less activity in a hospital and more enabling people to live well with their long-term condition. So I've now gone to three very high level measures of success. The first is the person experience. So as a service user, how do I experience this service? Is it working for me? The second measure is about outcomes. They might be health, they might be social care, they might be well-being, they might be community connections. But those are really important to say we are delivering something that we can measure. And of course, well-being we can measure, though it's more difficult. And then the third measure should be about effective and efficient use of resources. So it should be about using the resources to deliver the outcome in an effective and efficient way. So if you go to those three high level measures, if the whole system worked on those, obviously there'd be measures beneath them. But if they worked on those objectives, mm -hmm. then I think we could have an integrated system that works well for citizens, whether they are service users or taxpayers, and usually as well, people are both. Uh, you know, and I think we should acknowledge 
knowledge that people who use services are also taxpayers, whether it's the VAT that you have to pay when you go to the local shop or whether it's the income tax you pay, you're still a taxpayer. So we're all invested in this and we all should be getting the best outcome possible for the money, uh, but also the, the best outcome possible for the citizen. I would love to see that. Um be implemented in the future. So Professor Martin Green, really appreciate you joining us on the show and we'd love to have you back as well. Thanks, Toby, that'd be great. I completely agree with Martin's ambitious vision for the future. There's so much potential in the care sector and we need to shift the challenges of the past year into opportunities for the future. Thank you, Professor Green, for joining me on the show and thank you all at home for listening. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea with Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website, teawithtoby.com, where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea with Toby.